0: A reading from the letter to the Romans chapter 8 indeed I consider the sufferings of the present to be nothing compared with the glory that will be revealed in us all creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the children of God creation was subjected to the transience and futility not of its own accord but because of the one who subjected it In the hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to corruption and would come to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that from the beginning until now all of creation has been groaning in one great act of giving birth and not only creation but all of us who possess the first fruits of the Spirit. We too groan inwardly as we wait for our bodies to be set free. In hope We were saved but hope is not hope if its object is seen why does one hope for what one sees and hoping for what we cannot see means awaiting it with patient endurance the Spirit too comes to help us in our weakness for we don't know how to pray as we should but the Spirit expresses our plea with groanings too deep for words And God, who knows everything in our hearts, knows perfectly well what the Spirit is saying because her intercessions for God's holy people are made according to the mind of God. We know that God makes everything work together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to God's purpose. They are the ones God chose long ago, predestined to share the image of the only begotten, In order that Christ might be the firstborn of many. Those God predestined have likewise been called. Those God called have also been justified, and those God justified have in turn been glorified. What should be our response? Simply this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Since God did not spare the only begotten, But gave Christ up for the sake of us all, we may be certain after such a gift that God will freely give us everything. Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? Since God is the one who justifies, who has the power to condemn? Only Christ Jesus, who died, or rather was raised, and sits at the right hand of God, and who now intercedes for us. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, calamity, persecution, hunger, nakedness, danger, violence? As scripture says, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're looked upon as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet in all this, we are more than conquerors because of God who has loved us. For I am certain that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that comes to us in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is one of our sacred teachings. Thanks be to God.
1: Hello, friends. I had a sermon written for this morning that was a bit more polished, but in light of some of our more recent conversations, I'm afraid I scrapped it at the last minute and wrote you a letter instead. It's not as refined, but I hope that what it lacks in polish, it makes up for in sincerity. Dear Northminster, we hear you. We hear that you are hurting Every time we talk, it uncovers some new story of disappointment, some new grief and previously unknown level of suffering. I hear stories of canceled plans, of uncertain futures, of financial fear, of a sense of meaninglessness creeping in. I hear stories of an inability to get off the couch or to look away from the television. And we're coming to terms with the fact that this won't be over anytime soon. I hear you, and I feel you. And before we move on to do anything with that or to talk about anything else, I want to say this very clearly just in case you need to hear it. There's nothing wrong with you. As Viktor Frankl writes, an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. There have been quick and extraordinary shifts on the landscape of our lives, and in many cases things are not okay, so please don't say that they are. Contrary to what our culture tries to sell us, it's okay to feel pain and disappointment. It's okay to not be okay. Blessed are those who mourn, Christ teaches for they shall be comforted. In other words, only those willing to risk mourning, willing to risk allowing their feelings, and to let the world's pain move them to grief, only they will find comfort. Everyone else, he implies, is trapped. It seems obvious that we should be feeling our feelings, but believe me, it's not. Our mind tells us lies that, that the feelings will drown us, that we have no right to complain when others have it so much worse off, but the wisdom of our tradition tells us a different story. We do not come from a people who shy away from their suffering. We don't come from a people who ignore it or give easy pat answers to get around it. Our tradition is one that has in its most sacred hymnal the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away, so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? I cry all day, my God, but you never answer. I cry all night, and sleep deserts me. Our tradition is one that feels the permission to honestly cry out, Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What do people gain from all their toil at which they toil under the sun? All things are wearisome, more than one can express. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of the people yet to come by those who come after them. These are not the words of a people who shy away from their suffering, even when that suffering feels like death. We are suffering, Northminster. But let me ask you a question. What does suffering mean, really? In the story that you tell about life, what is the role of suffering? Dr. Viktor Frankl, who I quoted earlier, having survived the horrors of a Nazi concentration camp, came to write that life is not primarily a quest for pleasure or for power, but a quest for meaning. Suffering in and of itself may be meaningless, but in the context of a bigger story, in the way that we respond to it, we give it meaning. If there is meaning in life at all, he writes, then there must be meaning in our suffering. I mean, surely you don't buy our culture's narrative that life is about pleasure or escape, right? We only need to look around at those who have bought into this story to see where it goes, to see how quickly it robs us of joy and makes us slaves to distraction or addiction. So if you don't believe that, then what is life about? Think about your favorite story for a minute. It can be a sacred story or a movie or from a book or a story from your own life. Just think about one. Consider for a second how the story starts and and how it unfolds. Where is the main character by the end? Surely there's some level of suffering involved, right? Somewhere in the story. What would the story be without it? So let me ask where was the suffering? What did it accomplish? What did suffering mean? Or if, in your example, there is no redemption, then why? What what could the suffering have accomplished, and what stood in its way? In the years after Christ was killed and his followers began to face persecution, the Apostle Paul joined their ranks. And he began to taste the suffering that this marginalized group had been experiencing. At some point in his ministry, he wrote a long, incredible letter to the church in Rome, in the belly of the beast that had killed Christ. I know that whenever someone starts to read from Romans, it's easy to get lost in the theological baggage that the church has dumped on our shoulders. I know that's how I feel most of the time but I'd like to offer a paraphrase, which I hope will cut through some of that baggage so that we can hear it anew. This is what Paul says about the universal experience of suffering. He writes, All around us, creation is pregnant with goodness. But just like a pregnant woman, we can't yet see what is growing. So when we see and experience the pain and the suffering, those experiences aren't meaningless. They are the labor pains that come on the cusp of new life. We yearn for this new life. We feel the pain of waiting. But the waiting does not diminish us any more than it diminishes an expecting mother. The waiting... And the suffering, they are difficult. And we don't often know what we really need to survive it, but that's okay. Within the temple of our hearts resides the Spirit of God, and she knows exactly what we need. She yearns with us with sighs too deep for words, sighs that we can only hear and make our own in silence. If we listen, though, to her yearning, and we surrender to her call, then all things begin to work together for good. All suffering, all experiences become the raw material, the raw material for the sculpting of something good and beautiful. Since the foundations of the earth were laid, this is what life has been about. This is what it means to be a human. It's about surrendering to that spirit so that whatever comes our way, she can mold and shape us into the image of Christ. We look to Christ as the first in a family of a resurrected humanity, a family into which every single one of us have been invited. So then, what are we to say to suffering? If this is the nature of the game of life, then how can we lose if even the suffering and death of Christ could be worked into something good and beautiful through the Spirit, if suffering itself is the way to our aliveness, then what could possibly destroy us? What do we have left to be afraid of? What can work against us? Trouble? Distress? Oppression? Famine? Shame? No. In the Spirit, each of these things leads us towards life and victory. And if that's the case, he writes, then I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the joy and the peace of the Spirit. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not things present nor things future, not powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation could ever separate us from that loving and redeeming work of God. This is one of our sacred teachings. Northminster, I wonder if any of what Paul wrote speaks to your suffering. I wonder if it speaks to that yearning of the goodness to be born in and around you. In Buddhism, suffering is known as the first noble truth because they acknowledge that it's only through suffering that transformation is possible. Without suffering, you cannot grow, writes Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist master who grew up in the midst of the violence of the Vietnam War. He writes, without suffering, you cannot get the peace and the joy that you deserve. Please don't run away from your suffering. Embrace it and cherish it. Go to the Buddha, or we might say, go to the nail-scarred Christ and sit with him Show him your pain. He will look at you with loving kindness, with compassion, with mindfulness, and show you ways to embrace your suffering and look deeply into it. With understanding and compassion, you will be able to heal the wounds in your heart and the wounds of the world. Suffering has the capacity of showing the path to liberation. So embrace your suffering and let it reveal to you the way to peace. This is the pattern of death and resurrection, suffering and new life, which sits at the heart of our most sacred story. Suffering is that which reveals to you where you have work to do, that which becomes your vehicle to transformation if and only if you let it. In Northminster, that brings me to my second question. In the midst of all the suffering of the present moment, of the pandemic, the interruptions in your life, of the threats to your health and the threats to our children's health, and the racial tension and the threat of tyranny on the national horizon, In the midst of all of the suffering that we are experiencing right now, are you living as though what you believe about suffering is true? Are you honoring your suffering or are you running from it? Are you listening to your suffering with curiosity or are you distracting yourself from it? And in so doing, giving it the reins to control you. And that brings me to my last question. What can you do to live as though what you believe about suffering were actually true? What can you do to listen to your suffering, to honor it, to find its meaning for you? What is your suffering calling you to do? Is it calling you not to avert your eyes, not to shy away from that which breaks your heart and instead find some manageable thing to do about it? Is it calling you to take time to learn what you were not taught about well-being, about what it really biologically takes to be happy? Is your suffering calling you to something simple like Getting a good night's sleep or exercising your body or eating real food? Is it calling you to learn to meditate so that you can hear it more clearly? Is it calling you to call someone on the phone because you are crushingly lonely? Is it calling you to do the work of remembering what makes you come fully alive? And then by God, doing that with all you've got. Or for some of us, maybe it's calling you to seek out help. It might be calling you to contact a doctor or a therapist or a pastor to help you navigate this cloud of unknowing. These are all things that we might be afraid to do, but we avoid them at the cost of of our aliveness, at the cost of our joy and our peace. Dear Northminster, we are all suffering in different ways and you are not alone in that. We are a people who honor one another's suffering and show up for one another in the midst of it but we are also a people who believe in resurrection. So then let us practice resurrection. Surrendering to the spirit and find meaning in our suffering, not accepting that death has the final word. Let us take action and practice resurrection. So what is your suffering inviting you to do? Let us remember that suffering is not the problem. Northminster, our feelings are not the problem. The pain is not the problem. These are the alarms. They are the messengers calling our attention to the actual problems, the actual places calling for our work to be done. So please, let's honor our suffering. And listen deeply to it. Because answering its invitation is the only way to come alive. It's the only way to move your story forward. And this is, after all, the only story you get. So, Northminster, may we have courage, may we have companions. And may all things, even this, work together for our good. Amen.